You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scruffy. And I'm Norm. And today we're going to be talking about Under Falling Skies. Uh, today we're talking about the print-and-play version of Under Falling Skies. As always, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the mechanisms, sharing our innermost thoughts with you, the listener, and uh, yeah, let you know what we think about Under Falling Skies, the nine-card uh, print-and-play game. Isn't that right, Scruffy? That's absolutely right. We are aware that there is a retail version of the game as well which offers things like a campaign mode and a few other changes to the game. And neither of us have experienced that, so we're only going to be focusing on the print-and-play game today. We might bring it up here or there, but the main focus of the episode is the nine-card, as you say, Norm, print-and-play game. Excellent. So before we take a dive in, let's talk about how the game plays. If you've never played Under Falling Skies before, if you've been living under a rock and you've not heard of it, what on earth is Under Falling Skies, Scruffy? Okay, so Under Falling Skies is a dice placement print and play game where you attempt to stop waves of alien spaceships from damaging your base and you develop various upgrades in the form of robots and moving an excavator along your play area and the ultimate aim for you is to achieve progress along a research track before the aliens do enough damage to destroy your base or the mothership descends to a certain point in the sky. Yeah, it's a fairly straightforward game, but the basic concept is over a turn, what you're going to do is you're going to roll five dice. You're then going to place those dice onto your play area following a certain amount of restrictions. You're then going to resolve the effect of those dice and then the mothership moves down, triggering various nasty effects and the, well, that's one of the ways you can lose the game. As Scruffy says, if that gets all the way to the bottom, you lose. Or if your base takes enough damage from the uh, the kind of Space Invader-esque aliens <laughs> as they're coming down towards your base, then, then you also lose as well. And how that works specifically, we can unpack through the episode. But I think now you have a pretty good understanding of what Under Falling Skies is about. So let's take a dive straight into it. So, uh, Scruffy, where, where do you want to start with this one? It's a, it's a neat little game, isn't it? Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, there's a lot of places we could kind of dive in here. It's uh, quite a simple game, as we've intimated with the description there. Personally, I'd be really interested to know your thoughts on how you found the difficulty. I think for me, one of the main kind of conversation points for this game is that there is modular difficulty in that every single card on the game and the player is laid out in in single cards. So you have, I think, something like six cards for the, the spaceships and two cards, which are your base, those stack vertically. And each one of those can be flipped to a difficult side. So you could have one or two flipped over, you could have them all on the easy side, or you could go big and turn them all over to the difficult side. How did you find that? Yeah, I think the difficulty is one of the parts that makes this game replayable. We've already alluded to how the retail version includes more modular stuff to make the game more replayable, but this is something that both the 
the retail version and the print and play share is the fact that each card for where the ships head down at breakneck pace towards your towards your base have an easy side and a difficult side as it's such a smart little design and well i i played the first two games on the easy side mm-hmm. and then what i started doing is rolling a die and flipping that one over and then i thought maybe i'll roll the die twice and i'll flip Ooh. two over <laughs> <laughs> And it doesn't work out perfectly because there are, there isn't isn't the right amount for for a d6, which is what I had to hand. But um, <laughs> just just re-roll, right? Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's just me playing, and it doesn't have to be perfect, right? But it was neat. It was neat that I could do that, and it's so easy to have a unique experience and mm-hmm. change it up. It doesn't break the game either. You know, I, you'll never flip a couple and go, "Well, that one was crazy. That was the yeah. worst configuration." This game doesn't make sense now that mm-hmm. doesn't happen it's all very interesting one thing i quite like about it is it's not not just because of the the difficulty where you, where you flip the cards but the fact that the mothership moves down every turn as well means that you're constantly recounting the number of spaces so you think mm-hmm. oh, the leftmost column on one turn you're like i want to move that ship three spaces and then the the following turn, you're like, oh, well, now that's two spaces. Oh, but they moved again. So you're always recounting anyway. Mm-hmm. Like when you start flipping cards over, it doesn't mess with that because you never get over familiar with the yeah. sort of setup anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah, there isn't a play-by-play if I roll. A... So the way you, the, the enemy ships move is when you assign a dice to one of your action spaces on your on the, on your base. Any ships in the same column move that many spaces. And so higher numbers have a, a stronger impact for you as the player, but they also give that counterpoint to the enemy and the enemy gets enhanced by that strong dice. Um, and yeah, what Norm says is absolutely right, that you don't, for example, know that on turn three, you need a six for column two to be good. It's, you know, that sort of level of planning isn't involved. It's very reactionary, isn't it? You, you roll the dice, you go, oh, I see some good high numbers. And you go, oh, actually that low number there, that's really good because it means I can move this ship down, get them in a get them in a trap of my own devising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the game the game makes you feel quite clever when when something like that happens, but mm-hmm. uh, it can it can get out of hand pretty quickly. Yes, it's it's an interesting little game, and I think a lot of what you just described there, that sort of push and pull, is really at the heart of what makes this title clever. I feel that small innovation on dice placement really I mean the the game is pretty much just that idea right the game mm-hmm. is dice placement but with a twist that the dice you place also has a negative effect on on yourself as well as a positive one yeah that sort of two things at onesie type deal is so smart and not only is it smart it's really difficult because sometimes you roll and you think I don't want to place any of these dice. <laughs> yes, yeah. You might, or the the thing that my favorite moments in the game is when you roll and you go, okay, that five, perfect. I can put that there and it will move that ship just where I want it to. That's, oh, that's perfect. And then you go, oh, but no, because it will also move that ship or it will now block that ship from being able to jump over a row. And, oh, I can't do that. Absolutely can't do that because... I'll move the mothership down or, or whatever. Yeah, so the interesting thing is when these ships move down, obviously 
what they're going to do if they reach all the way to the bottom is they're going to do a point of damage to your base, mm -hmm. which is one of the timers for how you lose the game. But as well as that, and probably equally as important, is the game also has on, on, the, on the board itself, where they stop is important. So if they move three spaces, if that, that third space has uh, a symbol on it, it will then carry out an effect. So it could mm -hmm. move to the left, it could move to the right, it could make the mothership move down, which is means you're closer to losing the game. But also, that might be quite a good thing sometimes. <laughs> like, okay. But I mean, like, how many times have you had it, Scruffy, where you think, okay, so on the mothership phase, the first thing the mothership's going to do is activate the symbol that's right below it. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to activate that symbol. Let's move it down because the next symbol was only a red fighter, for oh, example. Oh, that's interesting. I was making it too hard for myself. I was saying that if I moved it down, it, it did the symbol when it moved. <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> no. Little hard mode. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really hard. No, so it's I quite... avoided it like crazy. Like, I, I didn't touch that. If ever, the, if ever the, the enemy ships could land on one of those, I was like, can't do that. Do something else. No, it's actually quite an interesting choice now. It's a push and pull. That is, yeah. Yeah. Although when you play on the hardest difficulty, those turns are important. Like unless okay, so this it kind of leads nicely into into my my view on difficulty here. There are there are a few little tricks that I think are a little bit er game breaky. And once you kind of figure them out in the game, it, it rewards you for this, makes you feel clever for those. But once you kind of figure out those little tricks, unless you kind of do what I did and go, okay, I know how to win with those tricks. Let's try playing a few games without them. And then <laughs> then you can kind of see, actually, it's a really nicely balanced and fun game. But if you do employ those tricks, the game does become a bit of a walk in the park. Oh, I'm really intrigued now. Talk, talk me through what are, those, well, what are those tricks. Okay. So for anyone who doesn't want to know the tricks, skip forward. But <laughs> <laughs> what, what I boil down to is the strongest spaces are when you can move the enemy ships left or right because what you can do is you can just line them all up and and then what that means i did that in most of my games is that you have all the other columns completely empty of ships and so whenever you place a dice in the corresponding places in your base no no ships move so you're just getting basically free actions that don't give you any downside no no lashback no pain and if you do do that you reach a point where you go, well, actually, at some point, I'm going to need to put a dice in maybe one or two of these columns. And obviously, I can't because I've lined up all the ships. There's a little trick for that, which is building a robot. And Norm's, Norm's going Norm's gonna to coin drop there when I say that. I mean... So if you put a robot in the column, so there's a space that you can take on your base where you your dice turns into a, a, an automatic dice that's placed there every turn, doesn't move the enemy ships. So if you put one of those dice that just ticks down every turn and does its effect in the column you must not touch, obviously you're safe. <laughs> and then you can just freely put your dice elsewhere in your base and not have any consequence. If you play like that, even just flipping all the cards over to the hardest side, there's no sweat. You, you, you spend the first couple of turns getting them all lined up and then you go can do what i want now. wow <laughs> that's blown my mind <laughs> yeah that has blown my mind and i i think uh in the retail version there are some uh cities or well, at least at least one city that i know of that you can play on with no robots mm -hmm. so that you know would be a much more difficult strategy to employ on that 
city. Yeah. But I also think that city in question is one of the easier ones that comes in a retail version. So Mm. that's that's a bit of a shame. We both had a little look at the retail version to see what we were missing. Um, And the the main sort of selling point of it is the campaign it offers. And I I really, because the first thing I said to my partner after I played was like, oh, do you know what would make this game so great is if the AI learned between games. If there was kind of a campaign mode where you don't know what they might learn, but maybe cards flipped over after every game and said, check four, were three ships in one column. If so, next game, they're not going to allow you to line them up. They're not going to move on the movement spaces and stuff like that. And I, I said, this is a game where that if you had that sort of clever learning, developing, adapting alien AI, I could totally see a campaign working for. However... Having read what the campaign seems to be, without getting any sort of spoilers or anything, I don't think it does that thing I want it to do. The aliens don't ever seem to learn or develop. Instead, you're just sort of playing the same game over again, but with slightly varying setups. That seems to be the sort of long and short of it. And that's a bit of a missed opportunity in my mind. That's interesting. I think... um... So I, I I don't think it's a game that requires a, a campaign, but I think I'd still like to get the retail version for the variability in setup because once I've played on several different difficulties, mm-hmm. I felt like winding now is different action spaces because this is very familiar. You know, I yeah. I know that the the best thing to do is to race my excavator straight or straight yeah. away down to the bottom. <laughs> as fast as possible. Um, so I don't know if we've unpacked this yet, but um, you start with only a few rooms available to place your dice. Mm-hmm. And there's something called the excavator, which is something that you can place a dice in front of it, and the, the number needs to be equal to or greater than the number of spaces you're placing it, it, it the dice in front of the excavator. And the excavator will then, when you resolve the rooms, move forward unlocking more action spaces and it's fairly obvious at least in this setup that the most important thing to do is get that down to the bottom as soon as possible because that's Mm -hmm. how you win and it would be interesting to see if the retail version does anything with the varying action spaces that maybe play off that idea or maybe make it so it's a bit of a push and pull so you don't have to race to the bottom immediately uh I don't know what you think about that, Scruffy. Yeah, I mean, you say it's that's how you win. The, the reason that's how you win is because it unlocks spaces that allow you to place multiple dice on the research track. And this is something I really like about the game. Well, I like and dislike, actually. It's weird. The, the, the way that you progress for your actual overall victories, you have to move up the research track. And that works by each space on the research track having a value that you have to meet. So the research track might go four, one, two. In that, in that case, you'd need a four to move one space or a five would get you to move two spaces if you put a five dice in a research space. Later on, and especially at the end, you get much higher numbers, the last space being a 12. So obviously for that one, you need to have either a, a two space research uh, space, a two slot research space for two dice and two sixes go in there or a three slot and then you can put some slightly lower numbers in. If that makes sense. So the reason the excavator is so important is that it opens up those higher level research spaces, which are needed to complete the ultimate objective of the game. And of course, the reason you want to do that early is because it's 
likely that the earlier you do it, the less damage you're taking, and it allows you to place those higher numbers faster without having the consequence of multiple ships dropping to your base, right? Yeah. <laughs> also, also moving the excavator unlocks loads of other spaces as well, so it gives you a lot more variety in your turn. Um, and just on the excavator, it is really cool that you said you need that to place a number equal to the number of spaces you're moving the excavator or higher. And you might think, well, why wouldn't you always just move the excavator as far as you can? But the fun thing with that is if you want to put it six spaces away, but that six space column is not good for spaceships, then you might have to use that six dice and put it five spaces away to put it in a slightly better column for moving the enemy spaceships. I'm sure you found that too, Norm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. You think, yes, I got the perfect die, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna place the six, and the excavator is gonna move six spaces. Wow, amazing! Let's see how that would interact with the spaceships on the board. Oh, that's terrible! Oh, <laughs> there are two spaceships on that column. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and that's that's kind of the the really interesting thing about about the game is the way, yeah, that that. That innovation, like I said earlier in the in the episode, of yes, you place the die and it does something good for you, but it also does something bad. And having the two things linked makes such an interesting push and pull. And I think one of my very favorite things about how you place the dice are the restrictions and mm-hmm. also the two different colors of dice. So can we can we unpack that as well? Yes. So there's two different colors of dice that you're going to roll. There are two white dice and there are three uh, black dice or gray dice? Black dice. Black dice. Yeah, so there, there, there are two different colors of dice. And what's interesting is you can place the black dice to your heart's content. But with the white dice, when you place them, you have to re-roll any dice that remain in your pool that have not yet been placed. And that is extremely interesting because sometimes you don't want to re-roll any. Mm-hmm. However, other times you want to reroll all of them, and potentially sometimes you want to roll some but not all. And working out when you can place the dice and trying to time that, you think, well, that's quite simple, isn't it? But no, because remember, when you place the dice, it also interacts with the spaceship. So there is several layers of consideration when you're placing your dice and when you time your white dice placement, it adds a real nice layer of tension. And sometimes it can be super useful. Sometimes you think, I, I'm going to place all of these dice and then I'm going to re-roll, uh, I use my white, and that will re-roll the remaining two because those two dice suck, right? <laughs> yeah. It's really, really wonderful. And on, on top of that, you're only allowed to place one die in each column. So you're kind of, you have that restriction of, okay, where am I going to place it? Well, my choices are here, here, or here. But if I place it here, that means I can't use the one right below it because it's already using that column. So, yeah, for such a simple game where you just roll dice and place them and then things happen, it's quite crunchy and and fun, I think. Yeah, I think that interplay of the dice then might be my favorite part of the game. Maybe. I mean, there's there's a lot to like about this game. But I think there's a there's a lot to the way that the, the decision space works there and that it simplifies as the turn goes on. So you start with a lot of options and it simplifies and simplifies and simplifies and you're in charge of those moments of change within the turn. So it's not just that you roll the dice and you've got what you've got. You're in charge of manipulating that randomness and, and, and maybe going, 
oh, if only I had a four. Ooh, maybe I'll use one of my white dice now and see if I can get myself a four. Oh, but I really want to maybe commit that six. Well, do I use... There were some lovely moments where I, I did, had this choice between do I use that high number on my black dice because I, I, I want to use it. It's good value for the dice. Or do I just re-roll it because I desperately want a four this turn? And I don't want to rely on the other two dice rolling the four. There's lovely uh, push-your-luck elements almost there. Do you take that six or do you just roll it for the extra bit of chance for the four? And either choice feels kind of satisfying. But ultimately, the, the fact that you have that choice is really exciting and fun. Yeah, and, and both choices in that case would be valid. It depends on how much you need the six and how much you mm-hmm. need the four and kind of weighing those up what what are my immediate priorities right now it's really it's really nice and um there's also a little bit of of resource management because when you use a room when you place a dice in a room and you use that room often you have to pay with something called energy and what's really interesting about this is you don't have to worry about energy when you're placing the dice you can place them wherever you want it doesn't cost anything to place them but you need to make sure that when you resolve the dice that you have the energy you need to pay for those rooms that you're about to use. It reminded me of, of dominant species in the way that there's like a planning phase where you place all your workers, and then there's the like resolution phase where you actually resolve the actions. And what's kind of interesting is there's interesting choices to make in both parts of the game. And uh, yeah, I really, I really like that. And you're spot on, Scruffy. The, you said that might be your favorite part of the game. It's absolutely my favorite part of the game. I think it is the game, you know? Yeah, um, the only reason it it might be is because I really just love how the alien spaceships move down and the the drama that creates. You you mentioned um, just now a thing of tension that you get from those dice and stuff. I think for me, the the real tension comes from the the, the sort of, like you say, space invader-esque spaceships moving down, but they, they happen so wildly. It's not all just one, then one, then one, then one. They kind of, they come in waves, right? Yeah. And that's really exciting. Yeah, and then watching them when you watching them line up. So we haven't spoken as of yet about how you get rid of those pesky space invaders, right? Mm. So, so the way that works is there are parts of the board where their ships move down, where they become vulnerable to attack. So it has a little like explosion icon. If you move them onto that space, it will have a target number. So if you have a dice that is equal to or greater than that target number on a fighter jet space, then all of those aliens that you've managed to place carefully and meticulously onto those spaces will just be wiped out and they'll be put back onto the mothership ready to respawn next round and be future use problem, but from a much safer distance. And that's that's extremely satisfying because it is not easy to line those up onto those spaces. Would you would you agree with that, Scruffy? Yes, absolutely. And the interesting thing as well is they respawn immediately next turn. So you're not necessarily destroying them for good. You're just buying yourself time. Unless there are these are just the, the little ooh, tasty little peppery treats in this game. There are two spaceships that are the red spaceships that will periodically come out into the game when the motherships moves down over one of their spaces and they add extra ships onto the onto the game board if you destroy them they're gone for good essentially but the green spaceships the most common ones will just respawn at the start of the next turn in whatever empty column they can respawn in 
so yeah, you, you, you're right. It's, um, it's really fun to kind of push them back and it's really hard to line it up, but it is very, very satisfying when that happens. Yeah, it makes you feel very clever. Um, the game mm-hmm. is very good at making you feel clever. And that says a lot about the design because that is not something that happens often. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that speaks to the heart of of what the game is about. There's there's a tension in the dice placement, but then there's also the decision space when resolving because you don't just have to consider where do I want to put my dice, but you then have to consider and in what specific order. You know, yeah. it might look like, okay, first of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this die to research. That's cost me one energy. And I'm going to use this die to shoot down those two fighters. And that cost me one energy. Now I'm down to no energy. So I'm going to remove this dice to gain five energy. And and that's just kind of, it's it's nice. It makes you feel like, yeah, look at look at me. I've managed to plan all this and snake my way around the uh, the resources and the and the complications the game throws at you. And quite a satisfying way for what is essentially a what fifteen minute dice roller game. It's neat. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was I was being a bit a bit glib early with my with my conversation, saying about how it's a bit of a walk in the park when you get the ships lined up. It is hard to get the ships lined up, and it's hard to manage your power as well in the harder versions of the game. You are often, at least I was in, in most of my games, just scraping by getting those bits of power, and it caps out at seven, so you can't just have a big turn where you just explode and pr- produce 12 power on a two-space power space two slot power space you have to you have to be careful and plan it and conserve it i often found investing so i should probably we should probably clear up what all the spaces are there's you've got your fighter spaces for shooting stuff down you've got your research spaces for generating end game score uh, end game victory condition you've got your power spaces for making the power to use the rooms and the robot spaces i hinted at earlier will allow you to set up one of the two robot dice to be an automatic extra dice that ticks down every turn you use it. And they can go in any room you like and will be set to the value that you send to that room. So obviously for all those rooms, rolling higher is better. But you might be going, well, what if you roll snake eyes every turn, just roll all ones? That's terrible, right? I mean, the ships aren't going to move down much, but the mother ship's going to move. Well, the great thing about that is there's one extra little space. And this is why my clever plan works. That you can invest in any of the columns. They all have this space uh, available to them. And that just moves ships down equal to what you rolled, minus one? That's right, yeah, minus one. Yeah, for a second I panicked that I got that wrong. So if you rolled a one, they don't move down at all. So obviously for my plan, getting at least one one a turn is kind of essential because that goes immediately in that column there to stop the ships from moving this turn. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, it's it's a really lovely little thing. And I had those lovely tense moments where I, I would roll all high numbers and go, I better do a reroll for a low number because otherwise I'm getting the entire um, armada is going to come down and destroy my base, you know, which is, which is nice that they've even got that little tension there uh even in a, in a game where I'm, I'm trying to break it as much as i can by lining the ships up in a in, in one big long tetris cube <laughs> nice 
So this game is Space Invaders and it's Tetris as well, apparently. Yes. <laughs> I should also say, for, for, my, for my cunning plan, I always kept the red ships away from the Tetris cube and, and just tried to destroy them because that felt incredibly satisfying to me to just take them out of the game. Nice, nice. And, nice. It, and it kept the game being kind of fun as well. Like there's always going to be one or maybe two, even green ships that you can't get into that line. And so it's, there is still that consideration there. It's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, the more I'm talking about it, the more I want to play it again because you know there's a lot to it really isn't there and it's it's those subtle little decisions and and like you say the restrictions in it that that make it really special and having those five dice and getting to manipulate them either spend if you love the black dice and how they look you can just throw them all straight on and then when you put your one of your white dice down you're only re-rolling one dice or you can mulligan and just put a white dice down straight away and re-roll all four dice it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of empowerment, empowered choice there. Yeah, managing your dice pool um, and like we like we keep alluding to, knowing when you need to reroll and what you're hoping for is is a big part of the game. And and like I said, so too is placing your dice and you know watching the the enemy ships and then you know result resolving them in a, in a specific order. And I don't know how many times where you think, okay, well, it's quite a short game. Like, you know, the decisions can't be that hard. There's been a number of times where I thought I meticulously planned. And then as I'm doing it, I go, oh, no, I've completely messed this up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't got the energy to do what I thought. I, I forgot oh, about the no. energy. And that that's fine. That's delicious. I love that that was a possibility where, you know, mm. I thought I meticulously planned something and it turns out I've forgotten about one key element. And... Now I'm a little bit screwed. I thought that was great. Those kind of moments made me think, yes, I would like to come back and keep playing this because my kind of initial concern after I played it for a second time, I'll be perfectly honest, I played it for a first time and I lost. I played it for a second time and I won and I only took a point of damage. And I thought, okay, GG, no need to come back here. <laughs> I got it. I get it, right? I, I get the game. And it wasn't until I started doing those you know, flipping those cards over for the varying mm. difficulty that for actually, no, there is, there is more here. And that's when I started messing up those turns. And, and I thought, oh, actually, yeah, this is, uh, this is always going to be a, a fun little thing to tinker around with. And, you know, even if you don't get the retail version, just playing like we have with the, the, the nine card print and playing, there's a lot of goodness here for sure. Yeah, and even though I, so what I did was I, I played once on the easiest mode to learn the game. Smashed it, no problem. Played once, flipping over all the space tiles. I was like, I'll make it hard for myself, and I'll flip over all the space tiles, but I'll keep my base tiles on the easy one because I've just got used to the base. Did fine, enjoyed it. And then I, for the all my other playthroughs, I played on all the cards on the hardest difficulty. The replay value was still there. You get used to like what to expect from the mothership, <laughs> and if you you make it hard for my extra hard for yourself and don't move the mothership down, you never skip any of them. You you kind of learn. So, for example, on the hardest, hardest difficulty, the first two turns, there is no point investing in research, basically, because the mothership's going to wipe it off the board for you. <laughs> but that makes it that you 
kind of nowhere to prioritize, but the replay value is still there. It's still different every game. Like I've had games where I haven't shot down like basically a single enemy ship, maybe the red ones, that's it. And then games where I've been calling my partner's room going, look at this, watch. If I if I take this dice off here, I get to remove this ship, this ship, this ship, this ship, this ship, and this ship. Oh my God, then this one doesn't respawn. <laughs> <laughs> and those moments are so satisfying because it's taken you some meticulous planning to get all the pieces in place there. And yeah. Yeah, that, that's something that literally happened in my game, like, you know, standing up from the table and calling my partner in to show her what I'm doing and how exciting it was. It helped that she just made little clay ships for me in the, uh, as I said, in the planning phase, inspired by one of our Discord users, Banana Republic. They, they, they were posting pictures of their version of the game, which made clay ships for, for, for their version. And I, I just thought they were amazing. So I've, I've done the same thing. And Oh, it was satisfying picking those little ships up. And... <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. And the, the lovely thing about the decision space is sometimes you roll your dice and you think, yeah, it's, that's pretty obvious where I need to spend these this turn. And then a little part of your brain goes off and goes, hold on, take a second here. Actually, if you do this instead, look what you can do. Ooh, can I do that? Hold on, let me rework it. And you can you can take a good you know, a few minutes on, on your turn, sort of working those things out. And yeah, any game where it has that kind of, I'd say, deceptive amount of depth, you know, in that mm. if you play it for the first time, you will think it's pretty obvious where to put your pieces. But actually, if you play it some more, you realize that you weren't placing them very optimally. And there is a lot, there's a lot of smart things you can do. And Scruffy, you've already said, you think you've broken the game. I didn't even consider doing that. So very fun little game to tinker around with. Yeah, the only the only thing I'd say is like the thing that I, I wish it had, and I, I really wish that the retail version does. I can't comment on whether it does, but I don't think it's going to. Is that I wish it had some sort of pushback beyond the first play session, like that you you restack you restack everything, and the aliens have adapted because I think that is so inherent in the trope it would match the theme so much if the aliens evolved as you played uh, it would it's obviously maybe outside of the scope of what a print and play nine card simple solitaire game is set up to do and like 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 we've both said already it's it's functioned so well as a, a light finger food chill game that has a, a lot of surprises and twists and turns for you i i just i wish and i i, I kind of doubt but that the retail version does this but i wish that the next step existed where this game could go to a whole nother level the aliens could change somehow more stuff could happen you could have not variable cities with variable base setups but variable motherships with variable alien setups you know and that to me would be way more exciting i'd love to see different combatants different opponents or reactions to your play style that challenge it some more because like i say i i kind of hit a kind of plateau where i had to start playing suboptimally in order to have more fun with the game because i i, I think my optimal strategy was a little bit game breaky and, and i wish the game had kind of a way to accommodate for that yeah and it's a shame that you reached that point so quickly mm. Perhaps even all it would need really is the sky tiles to just have less arrows on them. Like <laughs> that yeah. would be great. That would do it. Yeah, yeah, ab ab absolutely. It is a shame that you got to that point so quickly, and it kind of goes against a little bit of what we said about how 
you know it, it has a lot of um, replayability built in mm-hmm. maybe maybe it doesn't you know if you had to if you had to do that if you had to sort of nerf yourself in playing the game <laughs> i think um i think may, maybe then it maybe then it doesn't you know um certainly for me i feel like there's enough for me to to, to keep coming back but at the same time and I'm, I'm not sure this is a criticism again i think the the retail version does a lot to, to combat this with the sort of amount of variable setup and even the campaign but yeah for me once i was ready to you know hit record and and get on the mic with you scruffy i thought to myself okay that's under falling skies i'm i'm not sure if it's going to come back out of its box again yeah i'm not sure if i'm gonna we've said you know talking about it now makes us want to play it again and that's because we're excitable people yeah, who love <laughs> love love games but to be perfectly honest we've got a lot of games to play so re- replaying games for us you know when we do what we do for the podcast is a big thing if we go back to play the same game again and again it means we love it mm-hmm. how am i going to do that with under falling skies i think it's doubtful I think it's doubtful that I'm going to come back to this. Um, and it's not because I think it's a bad game. I don't. I think it's very good. It's just there are better, you know, this game has some <laughs> interesting innovations, but are there more interesting, you know, worker placement style games? Yeah. Is this something I can see myself putting in my top five or top 10 even? I don't think so. It's not, what I'm saying is it's not a bad game, but it's certainly not top tier and i don't know if that's an unnecessary comment but yeah it's just being honest what what do you think scruffy yeah i mean uh my partner asked me oh do you think you'll play it much more uh you know after i played it for enough of the episode and i said i, I don't know if i'll play it again <laughs> to be honest i said i want to play with the little clay spaceships they're awesome but i i think i've delved the depths and i've explored it you know when i i enjoyed the games i played where i nerfed myself as you said but having done that made it feel like I was starting to try and make my own fun already. And it wasn't that many playthroughs that I got to that point with it in. Um, maybe, yeah, I think I think it it might need more cards that you can swap in and out to give it more variability. It might need, like I say, a campaign mode where the aliens adapt and, and change. Or it might just need what the uh, the retail game offers, which is the variable setups. That might do it. But the print and play game on its own, yeah, whilst we said it, it is replayable while you're in it, as soon as you kind of break out of it, it kind of demystifies and you go, I think I'm done with this, if, if you're like me or Norm anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there enough to warrant this game getting to my table? From, from, and from, from a content creator's point of view, we've got a lot of games to play. Is this going to be one of the ones where in my very little free time, I get it back to the table? No, there are more games I'd rather I'd rather play. I think more games that I've yet to master and explore. And I'm certainly not saying I'm a master at Under Falling Skies. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying the the journey of mastery for this game isn't interesting for me. I don't think. Yes, um, I wonder how much of that has to do with the ending of the game. This is what I wanted to kind of circle back to earlier when I mentioned about the ultimate objective this is one side of the game that i really don't like and a lot of games do i mean there's some things i really like about it so what i like about this side of the game is that each step is a varying varying number so you can move multiple spaces you can 
in certain turns, it will be easy to shoot through it. Certain turns, you'll hit a sort of roadblock. There's a seven there. What? <laughs> I'm sure you had that feeling too. Uh, Norm's nodding now, just like you to know. Uh, <laughs> the, the main problem with it, though, is once you get to that end stage and you, you hit that last turn, you go, okay, I've got my two sixes in the two slots or I've got a 12 research, however you got it, and I'm there, I can do it. That's that's it. You just move your research counter up one, and the game is over. It's like the most anticlimactic ending in a board game I've seen in a long time, and it felt really, really dull. Like I, I wish that you could have just been building something the whole game. You meant to be. This is research to building an ultimate weapon. Why am I not building an ultimate weapon? I've got all the you know dice and stuff. I could be instead of moving a counter i could when i reach a certain milestone on here i could sacrifice a dice you know from my dice pool be rolling more a turn and then sacrifice one just to decrease the variability and options i have available to me but commit them to this super project and then in the end i'll have a little tower of dice in in a certain shape and that'll look and feel exciting like placing that last dice on there would be like oh yes I don't know. That's just one sort of idea that popped into my head that could have been different. But it, it needed something that I could look at and go, hurrah. It needed a moment where you wipe them all off the board or you the spaceships all off the board or you... I don't know. There needed to be some sort of dramatic conclusion to this invasion. And there, mm. there was... It reminded me a little bit of Spirit Island, in, not in execution, but in feeling, in that mm. you can kind of just go... Yep. Oh, the game is over, is it? Okay. Oh, is it done? Okay. So, you know, like you said, it's and very you see much... it coming, right? Maybe like a turn yeah. in advance. Yeah, and and you can you you know, when you're resolving your rooms, there's a couple of games that I played where I think I want to resolve all the rooms, but when I remove these two sixes, I win the game. So I just I guess I'll just do that and the rest of mm. that was all moot. Like I didn't need to do anything else. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you if you set up a robot, like I'd often set up a robot the turn before like I thought I was going to win. Set up a six robot in one of those rooms, even if it means cuz you only have the two robots and if you need to set up a new one, you have to remove one of your old ones. Even if it means moving an old one, that's fine. I'll just remove an old one and put it in that research room. Now I just need one six and I'm going to win. And so you roll the dice, you go, there's my six, brilliant. Now I just make sure the other aliens don't move and I win the game, right? There's no point placing dice anywhere else now. Yeah, and you kind of go, well, technically, the rest of this turn needs to resolve. But there's no thematic sense to that. There's no reason for me to do that. It just, I guess the only reason is because the alien, sp alien spaceships might move down enough to destroy your base, mm. but... Like, Again, you normally you can calculate that, right? Yeah, and you know those lovely little reduce their movement by one space really help with that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I I do I do feel the same way, and often I've I've seen that actually it's not just a case of placing two sixes, but actually you can jump up the last two or three. I think the last game I played, I jumped up like three spaces on the research track. I was like a seven and. I don't know maybe a, you know a middling number like a four and then a twelve, and you think oh that's a lot. Well, there's by the end of the game you have a three slot research space, a two slot research space, and then two one slot research spaces as well. You can really just 
fill them all. I mean, if you're using the um, three research space, you can't use a two research slot. So that's an interesting restriction. Unless you've put a robot in. Unless you've put a robot. So again, there's not, you know, um, you get to the end and you kind of go, that's the game. Cool. Now, you might, have had a, <laughs> you might have had a really hard game. And I actually kind of think it has a better ending when you lose. Because you kind of go, oh, no, if only I just got to place this dice, I might have been able to get the victory. But the way it resolves, they've already come down. They've already destroyed me. Yeah, ah. there's, there's drama in the aliens moving down. And there's drama when they get to the bottom with the mothership every turn looming down like the actual space invaders and then with the spaceships shooting down one one at a time trying to niggle at you that's got drama that's got tension that's exciting and when those sliders hit the bottom it feels earned because you've got a a moving piece as well as the slider with the research it's so perfunctory it's even separate from the board little track separate from the board it's like ugh. yeah i think in the in a retail version it goes up the track oh that's cool so i think they've sort of noticed that that's a a bit of an issue but Mm. i think i think for me you're probably right has that kind of anticlimactic ending we were talking about endings in games a few episodes ago and i think Mm -hmm. we pretty much both agreed that this should be one of our because we said like a game with a winning condition is our favorite right this does fit that description but we also said a game with an interesting finale, like a, a mm. coffee roaster where you where you have that one final turn, or a mage night where you beat the final cities, or even a Friday when you beat where you beat the pirates. And I'm rehashing old material from old episodes now, but this is, you know, what we discussed, and this very much goes against that. It's kind of you know, meet an arbitrary number, and you can probably you can probably plan that out right at the start of your turn. And What's even worse than that is you now have to enter a separate phase to resolve that, but you already know you've done it. So it's all, yeah, it's moot. And I don't think that we're kind of laboring the point here. It's a very minor part of the game, but I think finales are important. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the ending is very important in the game because it, it makes you, it hooks you for wanting more. And like I said, sort of segueing into this that might be the reason we're not hooked to want to play it that more because we don't feel that sense of accomplishment when you play a game of feast for odin you look down at your beautiful tapestry you've made and you go god that's interesting but i, I missed some spaces here or I, I didn't quite finish the shetland isles maybe i maybe next time i could do that oh maybe next time i'll take greenland and fill all that in oh and it gives you those nice hooks to want to try again in this you you win and you go <laughs> it, it, it kind of it, it actually almost detracts from the fun because you win and you go okay so that's how i do it yeah and that's yeah uh, you know it's, it's it's like problem solved yeah no absolutely absolutely i i agree i agree um overall though i i I like the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been, we've we've been really negative on it there, but it's a good game. It's good fun. <laughs> Try it. it. Is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's free to print and play, and the even the retail version is pretty damn cheap. And it's mm. produced by Czech Games Edition. They're great. They're a great publisher. Um, the co- components look fantastic. It has a bunch of extra content. Yeah, go print and play. Go buy the retail version. This is a good game. Is it a great game? Uh well. You know, I, that's that's what I want to say a lot this episode. I feel myself going, eh, 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 <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. 
Yeah. This isn't no, good content. I'm sorry, everyone. It's great for a lazy afternoon, isn't it? That's it. <laughs> what, listening Just... to this episode or playing the game? Yeah, <laughs> do both at the same time. There you go. You've <laughs> got two airs. Maybe that makes a... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but ge- genuinely, during the game where you're about halfway through and you've got half the unlockable spaces unlocked and you're still trying to work your way down, there's real dynamic, interesting choices with genuine tension. It's just a and shame that real exciting moments, like genuinely exciting moments. We saying, yeah, like we were saying when I when I destroyed those five ships in one turn, that felt like an ending, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the sort of bang you want to go out on. Like, why does that happen midway through the game, but not not at the end? Yeah, I'd say when you get about two turns away from the end, depending on how well you've managed the uh, the ships, like sometimes I've gotten about two turns away from the end, and I've gone. There's no way that any of those ships are going to do any more damage right now. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I'm, I kind of want to fold my arms and go, ah, I'm done. I don't even want to roll what's next because I've got a robot in place here and I've got a robot in place there. And I, I, is it even worth playing the next turn despite what I roll? Under falling skies, it peaks too soon. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, right, sorry everyone. I hate to be negative. Um, I really enjoyed the game, but it's um, kind of a bit, kind of leaves a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah, I mean, maybe what would be nice is if there were like little milestones that happened during the game, like little moments that when you reach a certain point on the research track or when you achieve a certain goal, like destroying X ships or whatever, that ticks a milestone up. I don't know. It just, it, it yeah, it needs, it needs, um, it's got the drama from the bad guys' point of view perfectly. I, I wanted to play as the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm sort of coming around on the idea of the campaign. Because mm, yeah, right. when I first heard the retail version had a campaign, I thought initially, that's a bit cynical. What they've done there is they've looked at people who've already got the print and play and they've included a campaign so that they have sufficient FOMO to go and buy the retail version. And how lazy is that? Everything has a campaign now. That's, you know, mm. boring. Don't, don't want to play it. But the more I play it and the more I think about the ending and how it works, the more I think, wouldn't it be more fun if when you get to the top of the research track, something else happens? Something, when you get there, something else, there's an, another reward. And that yeah. is knowing what happens next or unlocking something better, which helps you in the next scenario, potentially. I don't know how the campaign works, but it makes me think... Actually, getting to the top of the research track won't be a bland, vanilla letdown. Instead, it will be a, oh, what's next now? And I think, yeah, actually, maybe I'm coming round to that idea. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think if, if they handled it right, a campaign could be just what Under, under Falling Skies needs. Uh, personally, I, I, I think I'm going to be dissatisfied with anything because I have such lofty ambitions for it in my mind. But anything that gives you a kind of, pushback from the aliens another step and a context within which to be motivated to have the ending happen instead of a research track for this city maybe we're trying to evacuate everyone from this city and whether they evacuate or not has ramifications i did notice that if you fail a mission in the campaign mode you retry it and so that also soured me to thinking well maybe they're handling it in the way that i don't like personally campaigns to be handled i like campaigns to have diverging paths where if you win or lose you still carry on and st- story still unfolds it's just a different story 
there are consequences, but they're not just, oh, try and do it again. Maybe, you know, you'll do it this time and you'll be on the, the correct path like in a video game. There, there's, there's much more enjoyment for me in campaign style games where you can go down the separate path, win or lose, and still come to an ending. It's just a different ending. Well, I think maybe... But so few do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe, maybe, maybe we need to try it. Maybe we need yes. to give it a go. And I don't know if this, that needs to be a whole other episode, but I certainly feel like we owe it to you listeners to let you know what we think of it for sure. Whether that's just something we bring up anecdotally in a future episode or not. But um, yeah, I think I don't think there's a whole other episode on Under Falling Skies because uh, I don't intend to play it that much more. But um, but I do think for sure I would love to try the campaign and see how it handles it, um, yeah. or even just play through some of it and see what i think and if anyone listening has played the campaign mode if you're in our discord or if you are interested in our discord come over and tell us how it is because i would be really interested to hear if it's worth our time investing in and having a look at yeah and the links to our discord are in the description just go ahead and click on that um if you're having any trouble reaching our discord you can reach out to us on any of our social media platforms again links to all those are in the description but i think that's probably enough about under falling skies my final thoughts are this is overall a very enjoyable clever game uh, that i really enjoyed the real nice push and pull that the game gives you and i kind of wish that it was just a little more than what it is yeah sames Perfect. So moving on then, we're at the part of the show where we like to ask our listeners a question for the episode and respond to feedback from last episode's question. So Norm, what is the question this episode? So we've mentioned a couple of times this episode that this game reminds us of Space Invaders. We want to know your favourite solo board game that's based on a video game. Or even just makes you think of a video game. One that has a similar sort of vibe to a video game that you really enjoy. Anything like that would be lo- lovely to hear your intertextual favourites. Yeah, and it's, it, I kind of asking this question for selfish reasons because I see a lot of video game adaptations and I can't help but think they look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to know which ones are actually worth our time right because mm-hmm. it would be cool to cover that type of thing on a show how does it compare to the video game what mm. are the differences what elements does it draw in what elements does it change but i want it to be a good game i like episodes where we can be super positive all the time so if you can yeah let us know your favorite board game adaptation of a video game and you get bonus a star points for it being solo and a star if you're Across the pond is a a plus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm also interested if there are any that totally miss the mark as well. So if uh, if any of you want to go to the dark side with me and tell me about a board game <laughs> that you've played that it was just not the video game, like they they said they were the video game, but no. <laughs> yeah, I'd I'd be I'd be curious to hear just for my own morbid curiosity. But mm, yeah, yeah, we do love a good winch as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Without any further ado, then, let's have a look at the responses we got from last episode's question. Scruffy, do you remember the last episode's question? So last episode, we asked, what is your favourite sequel to a solo game? Um, We had a response from Tignik, who says, 
I can't think of many sequels, only expansions. My favourite true sequel is D-Day at Tarawa, the sequel to D-Day at Omaha Beach. Both games involve amphibious landings during World War II. Tarawa reflects the realities of the Pacific War. Compared to Omaha, in Tarawa, the landing craft drift wildly and troops must often simply wade ashore. Gosh, this makes landing much less predictable and way more dangerous. The game also adds close combat, which is the most interesting and devastating part of Tarawa. The game simulates very well the challenge of fighting an enemy who will simply fight to the death no matter what and who because of the fact that you're fighting on an island and have nowhere to retreat to. Wow, that feels very gritty, very like it, it took what I imagine was a, a much more uh, broad, would that be the right term, game and, and, and took it right down to mud and blood. I mean, oof, that does sound absolutely brutal, the, uh, the sequel there. Obviously, that's not one I've played or even heard of. Have you heard anything about that, Norm? You're our resident war gamer. <laughs> oh, wow, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that title. But I'm the resident war game curious uh, yes. at this point. <laughs> Um, come back in a year and maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll learn that title. But for now, <laughs> certainly not. Anyway, yes, I have heard of both games, and mm-hmm. the thing I hear most about either is that they are brutally hard and difficult. But that's, mm. that that kind of touches at the heart of one of my favorite things about war games is that Tigmic says that it introduces close combat, and immediately we have an idea in our mind of what that might be like mechanically and mm-hmm. also what that means thematically. And tonally, I guess. And tonally, without even playing the game. I love the way that they kind of zoom in and zoom out on these particular aspects. And that sort of simulation-esque play is... Some people find it tedious to learn, and that, that may be true, but that's the thing that I think attracts me the most about that those kind of games where you know the theme the mechanics and the tone are all working together and more interestingly it's about something that really happened this is what sprung to mind as soon as they said close combat my brain already had a very clear idea of what that might look like and i think that's something really special about war games and you know both both look very very interesting i if you have a look at them scruffy i'd love maybe one day to to give one of those one of those uh a try for the show potentially because yeah they've they've been on my to playlist for a long time and they're supposed to be very hard and I'd love to see you specifically give them a go because uh for those of you that don't know scruffy is a wizard and just <laughs> wins at games uh we we're having a chat in discord about too many bones recently actually and um i was criticizing scruffy for playing on the hard mode straight away but mm-hmm. at the same time, I was like, I completely understand, though, because Scruffy is just a genius and somehow yeah. wins at games all the time. So That's yeah. so sweet of you. It's not true at all, but I do like the hard mode for games. <laughs> yes. I was I was very good with this one, though, with Under Falling Skies. I went easy mode right at the start. I learnt my lesson from too many bones. And what did you and do I was, in the next, the next game? You played next on... Game, I went almost the hardest mode, but I kept the base. <laughs> And then every other game I just play on the hardest mode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good reply, Tigmic. Excellent, excellent yeah, choice. Thank you. And so, yeah, I, I think out of the two of those, uh, D-Day at Tarawa, I, I, I really like the sound of that 
sort of brutality there and, and getting really up close. I think for I don't know how it would work as a, a, a new person to Wargaming's first-ish experience. I mean, I played Silent Victory, so. And you've played the Coin Tribes Revolt. Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm uh, <laughs> taking my first steps, but and, so maybe... and Pax Premier as well. Even I mean, it's is that, more is a... that count as a war game? I mean, it's 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 a historical game. It's a conf... it's a conflict sim- simulation, right? Um, may yeah. not be combat simulation, but certainly conflict. I would certainly put it in that sort of war game stroke historical game category. So maybe trial by fire and blood. Hey, that could be fun. And um, if you're interested in war and historical games, we have a channel for that on our Discord. Um, yes. As we've already said, uh, go go ahead and check that out. Okay, our next response to the question, what is your favourite sequel to a solo game, was from Peter Lovelace. Peter said, my favourite sequel might be Orchard's sequel, Grove. Orchard is a game I've played very often, and to get something similar but new is just such a nice breath of fresh air. I like how Mark Tuck thought about the weaknesses in Orchard's design and improved on them. For example, in Orchard, some cards are rotationally symmetric. How many times have I turned a card to see that it stays the same pattern? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. This leads to obviously less decision space. Whilst in Grove, uh, this is avoided because of the blank spaces on the cards. In Orchard, it is nearly impossible to place a card in the middle in the latter half of the game. However, in Grove, because of those blank spaces, there is a much better chance of that happening. So it's really good stuff. Okay. Yeah. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that does address some of the frustrations. I mean, it's no secret from our Orchard episode that Orchard wasn't one of my favorite games. I really didn't get on very well with it. I didn't enjoy the experience. But it sounds like, especially that, I rem- it gave me flashbacks listening to Peter's response there of the rotating a card all the way around and being like, Okay, no difference. <laughs> and it's it's very frustrating that because you you only have two cards to choose from in Orchard anyway. So decision space isn't massive, massive. And to have that feel like you've lost a decision there, it's uh so it's it's yeah, a bit gross. But it sounds like Grove addresses that at least. And um I've you know, I've heard nothing but good stuff about Grove. Yeah, and it has some end game scoring bonuses and stuff like that. I think um I think it's worth checking out for sure. It's another nine card. Print and play. We do like our nine card print and plays on this on this show. Okay, we have uh, another comment here from uh, Octavo, who says, "For me, it's got to be Pandemic Legacy Two. Although it's arguably not solo, I really enjoyed the spin on the mechanics and story was pretty cool as well. It's also a story of recovery, which is pretty apt these." days yeah i don't know if i could play pandemic at the moment i think <laughs> personally it would just be too uh too raw you know <laughs> i don't know how I people think, are still playing it i think i could play pandemic i could play yeah. it and i could roll i could role play taking a flight um <laughs> oh, I, wow. uh, this part of the game i get to take a flight wow what's that like <laughs> this part yeah. of the game we're going to move from one space to the next wow um mm-hmm. because the most that i've been able to do recently is move from the from the uh bedroom to the office <laughs> you know um and on and by office i mean spare room <laughs> Did you uh, did you look into Pandemic Legacy Season Two? I know we played one game of Season One together, didn't we? And and you you played a few more, but did you have a look at Season Two? I did. I I purchased Season Two, okay. and I 
wasn't as into my solo gaming at the time. And when I couldn't get uh, the group enthused to play season two, I sold it. Had I been a little bit further along in my solo career, I would have absolutely just soloed it because Octavo says he doesn't know if it counts as solo, but I think it definitely does. Pandemic plays great with playing as multiple people. Multi-handing Pandemic works well. I prefer doing that to playing it in a group, although I must admit Pandemic is one of my favorite games to teach to non-gamers. Um, the idea of a, of a cooperative game often tends to tends to blow their minds. Um, and Pandemic <laughs> is, a, is a good little gateway, I think. It was, it was my gateway anyway. But yeah, playing it solo is, is my preference. So yes, Octavo, that absolutely counts. And I kind of regret selling my copy of Pandemic Legacy Season 2 because if I still had it, I'd have soloed that bad boy straight away and maybe even talked about it on the show. <laughs> okay. We had another response. This one was from Stop Somewhere Eric. Uh, Stop Somewhere Eric says, does Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion count as a sequel? Because, yeah, I, yeah, I think so, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> because I see it as a great compacted version of the solo experience from the larger Gloomhaven game. Also, if we count expansions, and I would say Branch and Claw adds a lot of play to sp the Spirit Island main game. No, we're not counting expansions. You are incorrect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. But yeah, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, for sure. Absolutely. I haven't played Jaws of the Lion, but I think I would prefer it to Gloomhaven from what I've seen. I love the idea, at the very least, of the storybook setup. Have you seen this, Scruffy? No, I haven't really looked into it very much at all. I've heard good things, obviously, but uh, I haven't. See, so I, I tried quite a, a, a lot to try and solo Gloomhaven on Tabletop Sim, and I, I just couldn't get into it. I, I even tried the digital version of the game, and I just I couldn't get into it solo. But especially trying to play it on Tabletop Sim, it was, it was the multi-handed problem I, I mentioned in the Spirit Island episode that I found it just a bit brain burning. So I wonder what what changes up. What what did you what have you seen from uh, So so I don't think it will solve that problem. You still have I believe these simultaneous player decisions which yeah. I think like we've mentioned isn't our favorite thing to solo. Spirit mm -hmm. Island has the same issue where you have to make decisions for both players acting on the same turn. However, that said, it does solve another big problem with Gloomhaven which is the setup so instead of having tiles that you have to piece together, the game's campaign is a storybook that when you open up, that's the that's the map, that's the board you're playing on. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. So you just take out the book and you go right. First first mission, bam, there it is. That's so cool. Second mission, bam, done. I thought that was why was the original game not that? <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah. why is the original game a huge box for like uh, over a hundred pounds and it weighs like 15 stone? And <laughs> it's like, I guess it was inspired by original dungeon crawls like Hero Quest and those yeah, sort of games where you had the, the modular tiles and stuff, which are really cool to look at. But they're a pain. <laughs> I mean, when you when you already know the solution, it's easy, right? Like it's easy to say, why doesn't why mm. wasn't Gloomhaven this storybook to begin with? I suppose it's easy now that Jaws of the Lion is, exists, but I yeah, I think that is a very cool idea. Very cool yeah. idea indeed. I wonder how they set the pages up so you don't have a fold in the middle. 
Well, you do. You do. You just do. So it's on a ring binder, and you do just have a that, bit of a gap in the middle. That's that's better than... Yeah. Yeah. I was imagining like a, a regular rule book with the fold in the middle, and it's sort of all... <laughs> yeah. Convexing up. <laughs> but even, even if that was the case, a sheet of plexiglass would fix that right out. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So we have a response here from... Comrade Boris, who says, not that I've played it yet, but Star Trek Frontiers would be my answer. I mean, I love Mage Knight, so this would be a guaranteed hit. So there we have an answer for a game that hasn't even been played yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Are you interested in playing Star Trek Frontiers, Scruffy? Because we both love Mage Knight. What, are you interested in giving it a go? And we both love Star Trek, of course. Yeah, yeah, we love, we adore Star Trek. We're, we just started a new Star Trek Adventures role-playing campaign together. So yeah, love Star Trek and love Mage Knight. But I'm not convinced that I want to play Star Trek Frontiers. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. Maybe because you're so invested in Mage Knight in its current lore and world and things. And I can kind of see that, that reskinning it Star Trek style, it kind of feels like a clash of two worlds that don't belong together. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, and I think thematically as well. I, I, I saw, you know, there are some content creators. I think Tom Vassell said, if you can completely reskin a game and it and the theme still applies, then it's a, it says a lot about the theme. I don't think so. I think Mage Knight, I feel like a Mage Knight. I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm mm. bigger and better than this land that's before me and I can wreck the whole cities and I can, I can burn down the monasteries. And you know what? I will. Yeah, that's not very Starfleet, is it? No, it's not Starfleet. That's what I mean. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I don't think Picard would do that. <laughs> but I would. Arathia would. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek is a game, is is a world, a universe of discovery, isn't it? Mage Knight, it's more a challenge, like a gauntlet. That's how it feels to me. Yeah, it's a harsh world where you might uncover things, but. The exploration isn't the main thing in Mage Knight. The challenge is the main thing. Overcoming a harsh, gritty world is the main thing. Yeah, I think I think uh, you're talking me around there. But if you're hyped for it, comrade, awesome. And let us know how it plays if you do get your hands on it, because I'd love to know the changes. I'll probably play it and love it now. I'll probably play mm-hmm. it and just fall in love. But um, and yeah, initially, I just that's the the vibes I get when I play Mage Knight. Is I am a I am a powerful and somewhat arrogant, you know. When I see a marauding orc, I think you, you're pathetic. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you think you can stand against me? Like, I'll crush you. Um, and when you're playing as a federation, that's that's not how you want to feel. I don't think. No. <laughs> Maybe it says about more about me as a player. I think that's the issue. Here. <laughs> no, I agree. Actually, a hundred percent. I think. Yeah, I think there's something about it being that you are one mage knight, and you're kind of scraping by on your on your on your way and drawing in companions and stuff you're not like the enterprise <laughs> you're, you're like you're a dude picard picard wouldn't call people peasants i mean that's just a fact <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah. and there's something about as well sending a peasant into fight and letting them get wounded and then discarding them for the next thing to come along you know that sort of cutthroat brutality you, you, it doesn't belong in Star Trek. Yeah, the, the mechanics sort of encourage, they sort of do a good job at conveying what the Mage Knight's personalities are like, and they are not in line. Maybe if I was playing with, like, Klingons? That's what I was are- just about to ask you. Oh, my God, I was going to say, if it was a, a reskin version of Star Trek Universe, but you are the Klingons, and you're a Klingon war vessel travelling. You can play as a bird of prey in that game. You no, can play well, as that a bird might of- work. That yeah. might work. 
So I think the options are you can play as a uh, bird of prey, you can play as the Enterprise D, you can play as the Enterprise, uh, the original mm. Enterprise A, and I think you can play. Oh, I think, I can't remember um, the other one. Oh, it's bugging me, but I can't remember for now. But those are the, the kind of options. So yeah, maybe that would solve the issue. But I don't know. We're guessing. I think it's also in terms of theme and stuff. I think it's also an issue of pacing in Star Trek. I like to take my time and chill and you know that, that that's how I would feel about it like I like to indulge in the world and watching the episodes and things and I think a game would need to reflect that that it's sauntering through exploring things I think a Star Trek major night would feel more like the Star Trek movies where everything's turned up to 11 for some reason and we're not just hanging out and talking about data's rights <laughs> and that would be yeah. a shame yeah I, I agree. I agree. I agree. Star Trek's because... more of a mystery game than a what's Mage Knight? An action adventure game. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Let us know if you've played both. How does it compare? Do you does it do a good job with the retheme? Do you feel like the Federation when you're playing it, or is it a little bit wonky coming from Mage Knight? I'd love to know what what you have to say but i hope you agree with me because i don't want to pay for another game <laughs> please <laughs> <laughs> and if you tell me it's good i will probably want to buy and play star trek frontiers but yeah and there's one more uh response that we had which is from banana republic who said one deck dungeon forest of shadows was a great sequel it built upon the first game and added the poison mechanic with more content it was also a standalone expansion, so you didn't need the first game to play it. Cool. Awesome. I haven't played either, so... I've played a digital version of this game. It has some really cool dice mechanics, actually, uh, and the way you, you build your character is really fun. I've kind of always wanted to try it out as a board game because I think the tactility is really lacking in the digital version, um, and I could tell it's something I'd really like to be taking those extra dice and putting them physically on the enemy cards. So the way it works is you might draw an enemy card, for example, with two yellow boxes, uh, three blue boxes, and a pink box. And based on your stats, you'll be rolling those different colored dice in different numbers. And you're just trying to beat their sort of stats. So it's just it's, it's really a dice chucker game where you're trying to roll high. And it's, it's very luck-based. I can see it being quite off-putting for a lot of people who don't like RNG in games because your success or failure is based on how well you roll, but there's some really neat mechanics where it mitigates it in the way that it allows you to slot them onto the sheets. You can get skills, allow you to do re-rolls and things like that. I mean, mechanically, I would say it's very uh, janky and, 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 and like there's a lot of rough edges there, but personally, I kind of, when I, when I played it, I was kind of, swept away and i was like yeah why not why not not have a neatly polished rounded game let's just play a, a game where actually my luck does matter a bit i'm only playing with myself you know it's a story at least even if it is a story that ends in failure um and yeah it's got really cool character progression and things like that it's cool to hear that there's i didn't know there was an expansion out that's standalone as well that's actually a real uh real exciting selling point for that and thank you for the tip banana yeah, I've not played it, but from um, Scruffy's description there, that sounds well up my alley. Although we didn't get any more responses to the question, we got a lot, a lot of compliments from our last episode, which is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, 
you, you guys are always so nice about the podcast anyway, so thank you for that. But um, last episode was, you know, kind of a big deal for us. You know, it's the first time covering a game that isn't out yet. And Iron Sworn is our favorite role-playing game. So to be able to cover the sequel uh, and speak with the designer, we were like excitable kids. So it's really awesome to see that not only did we really enjoy that, but you all enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much for the positivity and all the pos- all the excellent feedback we got from that episode. Um, it didn't go unnoticed. And if I had to read it out here, we'd, we'd, we'd be here for another, I'd say, a good half an hour to, <laughs> to an hour. So um, we're not going to read all that out, but uh, I really appreciate every response that we got. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. It really did mean a lot. Um, there, there were some really lovely comments on the Discord that I caught while I was uh, while I was scrolling through, and, and they really did just make my heart happy. So thank you guys so much. It was a nerve-wracking episode, as Norm says, and we, we both really enjoyed it, and we're really glad that you guys did too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if, if you weren't a part of that positivity and you want to be, um, as we've already alluded to in the episode, you can join our Discord. The links are in the description. Uh, you can contact us on social media where you can answer today's question, which, just to remind you, the question for today's episode is, what is your favorite board game adaptation of a video game? And bonus points if it's so low. You can reach out on Facebook. The links are in the description. You can catch us on Instagram. It's at always player one podcast. We're on Reddit as always underscore player underscore one. And you can also support the show by checking us out on Patreon. We're patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast. There you'll not only support the show, but you'll also get access to our bonus content, the planning phase. The planning phase comes out every other week. So if you're not on the Patreon, then you are you're missing out on content every other week. <laughs> But away away from that, another way you can support the show, and I haven't really said this before, is um, you can tell someone about us. Recently, we had a surge of people join the Discord, and this was because I found out someone gave us a shout out on one of the Facebook groups. And guys, it really, really helps the show when you talk about us. You know, I can sit here to I'm blue in the face and I can do social media posts and advertisements and all the rest of it, but none of it is as effective as when one of you says, have you checked out Always Player One? They're, they're all right sometimes. <laughs> Hit and miss. <laughs> One of the hosts is all right. <laughs> they have some weird opinions about Spirit Island, but apart from that, they're fine. <laughs> and I'm not saying rush off and be evangelical, but if you're sat here thinking, I don't think I've ever spoken about Always Player One on social media. Well, maybe next time you see someone asking about Mage Knight or Iron Sworn or Marvel Champions... Just go ahead and link our podcast because we'd be eternally grateful. Indeed. And just to go back to our Patreon, that's uh, the planning phase is where we drop all the secrets about guests coming on the show. So if you uh, if you missed our drop that Sean Tomkin was coming on for the Star Forged episode, then make sure you sign up for Patreon for the next big name reveal. <laughs> yeah, because we do have things in the pipeline. So yeah, that's pretty much everything we wanted to go over for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to our meandering and flip-floppy thoughts on uh, Under Falling Skies, which is overall fantastic little game, but not without its flaws, I think. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Um, and yeah, we'll, if we don't see you at the, in the planning phase on the Patreon, then we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. The links to that are in the description. 
We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.